0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co host, Nick Sigelski. And today, round two, it's the one and only Mr. Kyle A.C. Nick. Why should people listen?
1: I just love how Kyle gets into some specific nuance around stuff like call prep. He talks about you shouldn't be taking your call prep notes in the form of information. You should be taking them in the form of questions. And he gives some detail as to why. He talks about how you can get more effectively multi-threaded when you're asking for that big intro to the exec, when the answer might be no, and how to actually set yourself up to make it a yes. So if you want to have better disco calls, if you want to get to power and have better calls with them, this one is a very solid listen.
0: And folks, if you haven't looked at Kyle's background, he was a senior leader over at Qualtrics, which is an amazing sales org. He's currently an RVP at MongoDB. And so this guy is a total badass. And guess what? What he's also decided to do is he mentions a absolute must download executive summary email that you can send before a meeting with an executive. And so download in the show notes and a three, a two, a one, we're live.
1: This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects
0: who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.
1: steal them. All right, Kyle, welcome back to the show. You remember, we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Awesome.
2: Number one, my good day framework. AEs are really great at being busy and filling their calendar, not so great at being productive. And so my advice is go figure out what actually makes you impactful. Measure things like how many conversations you have, not how many calls you make measure how many contacts you add to your cadence, not how much time you spend prospecting, figure out what makes you most effective, be accountable to that. Beautiful. What's number two? Number two is give to take. And so uh, discovery conversations often turn into interrogations, which buyers hate. Like they put up walls, they get uncomfortable. Nobody likes to be quizzed. We still have to ask questions. My favorite way to take questions away from the interrogation realm is to say the reason I'm asking is... And then do either add context or add value. Context can be the reason you ask, like, hey, I noticed in your industry this trend that applies to this use case. Or it could be a customer story that highlights your solution in a positive way. But anytime you find yourself interrogating, make sure you're teaching something, sharing something to break up the conversation and make it more of a discovery conversation, not a sales call.
1: Wonderful. What's number three? And the reason that I ask is we always do three actionable takeaways in the beginning so that the audience gets a good amount of takeaways right up front.
2: You're such a good active listener, Nick. That's why I'm back. Number three is emotional relevance. And I'm huge on this aspect right now because I'm all about buyer psychology at the moment. This is the idea that you should center your messaging and sales process around helping your buyer avoid their most dreaded email or phone call from their boss. So for example, for a salesperson like me, the email I don't want to get is, Kyle, your forecast dropped. How did you not see this coming? If I'm in marketing, it's, hey, we just spent a whole bunch of money on this campaign and we have no sign that it ties to revenue. The more that you can tie your prospecting, your entire sales cycle to helping your buyer avoid the most dreaded email from their boss, the more emotionally relevant you're going to be and the better conversations you're going to have.
0: So Kyle, let's take that example of Your forecast dropped i would never want to receive that as a vp of sales in my inbox similar to how i wouldn't want to receive something that sounds like you sell like nick or you're a terrible salesman right horrible things to see but if i want to have that weaved into my prospecting messaging my guess is you're not putting your forecast dropped in your subject line and using a rather clickbaity email. So talk me through how do you weave that concept or that fear into prospecting messaging?
2: I got an email a while ago, actually now. But the first sentence was, the best managers are never surprised. And that is a less aggressive way of calling out, hey, you never want to get really good news or bad news in surprise fashion. It's on you to know your business. So they weaved in the concept of I never want to be surprised. I never want to get a bad email from my boss because I didn't see something coming. And then they tied it back to understanding my business, not through a bunch of spreadsheets, but through a single dashboard. And that resonated with me because they're right. I want to be a best manager. I aspire for that. I hate being surprised. So that was emotionally relevant for me.
1: So one area that I've gotten tripped up as a seller is buyer in this scenario, they respond and they say, you know what, Kyle, you've given me some good food for thought probably worth a conversation. And you book some time and you get on a call. Can you talk about that pre-call question planning that you're doing in that scenario? What actually goes into it?
2: So when I'm going into pre-call planning, it goes back to the point of view I always want to have. What do they care about? What are they doing to accomplish what they care about? And then how can we possibly help them? Like I know for the typical, for MongoDB, I have an idea of what the typical developer team works on. I know generally how they spend their time. I want to go spend the call getting more specifics. So I'm going to build out questions to better understand what products they're building, what the timeline is, and specifically what gaps they are seeing to go hit the targets that they're given. And so when I enter the call with a point of view, I'm able to use discovery to go get much more specific and measurable inputs to tie to that point of view. So instead of, hey, my hypothesis is developers want to build things faster, I want to leave the call with what do they want to build, what is their timeline, and what projects are at risk if they miss the timeline, and who in the organization is most heavily impacted if those timelines are missed. That's a whole lot deeper than just, well, I know developers want to build more faster. Now I have it tied back to application names, specific quantified pain that's going to allow me to talk to more people in the org, especially at the higher level. And they'll be like, wow, this guy actually knows my business. He knows my product timeline. And he knows what consequences I face if we miss those timelines. Now I have an audience with a more executive team because they know that I know their business.
0: Kyle, it sounds like you're using that point of view to earn more credibility for the rest of the call as well, to get that credibility from an executive that you know their business. So my guess is you're inserting this point of view pretty early. In the sales call can you talk about when and how you insert that point of view
2: all right from the even with the initial outreach i want to start inserting the point of view because a big fear that buyers have is that the salesperson knows nothing about them nothing about their industry and they're gonna have to go educate you before you can help them so the sooner i can show that i have a point of view that is somewhat fleshed out the sooner like okay this guy's not going to waste my time that gives me the right to go ask more specific questions. It goes back to, thinking in our first episode, why I don't like the question, tell me about your role. It's like, what do you mean? What part of the role? It's talking about your role as it relates to these things that I'm pretty sure you're focused on. Now, as a buyer, I'm like, okay, yeah, you know generally what I care about, generally what I'm focused on. I'm happy to give you more detail. I'm not happy to lay a foundation and explain to you what a VP of sales typically cares about. So, yeah, point of view, as early as you can share it, share it, it builds credibility.
1: I want to point out one of the things that you're doing in that pre-call prep, Kyle, where most salespeople, once they get... A little bit comfortable with their role. They're like, okay, there's certain information that I need to know about this customer or hypothesis that I need to bring. And what they do is when they do their call prep, they take notes in the form of information, of notes about the business. What you're doing is different. You're taking notes in the form of the questions that you are going to ask, because that's how you drive the conversation. What a lot of salespeople try to do in real time while managing an interaction with the prospect is they've got their note sheet on their other screen. they're looking over and they're trying to figure out how they can turn their pre-call prep into questions. Do not put that cognitive load on yourself during a sales call. Do it in advance so you can just start ripping questions during the meeting. I think it's brilliant what you are doing. But I want to ask you now about one of the toughest scenarios, which is when you get like almost like a bulldog customer, right? You've had that back and forth interaction pre-meeting, you get on and they hit you right away with, all right, it sounds like you've got an idea of why you're different or why you're better give it to me. Give me your pitch. Tell me why you're different. Tell me why you're better. And they hit you right away. And it's not a discovery call now. Now they're discovery calling you. What do you do in that scenario?
2: Yeah, that's the whole, you ask for this call, why don't you just tell me what you do concept, right? It's especially common, I think, with, with executives because they're impatient with salespeople as they probably deserve to be at this point. What they're really asking, of course, is how do you think you can help me? Hey, they don't care what you do. They care, how can you help me? And so whenever I get that bulldog approach, we generally help people like you ship products faster because we help your engineers spend their time developing mission critical applications, not toiling away on a database. Now, I would love to get more specific on what that might mean for you. Before I can do that, I need to better understand your developer team, how you currently assign those teams out, what percentage of time they spend fixing bugs versus shipping new features, That will give me a much better ability to go much deeper. But generally speaking, people like you like to talk to people about me because if you successfully implement our solution, your team at the same size does a whole lot more than they're doing today. Then I go back into discovery. What I'm not going to do when they ask that, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not going to answer that question. I need to ask you questions first because now they're just pissed and they're like, well, this is garbage. You're withholding information from me. I will give my hypothesis. Here is how people like you typically benefit from people like me. In order for me to get more specific, can we please take a step back and better understand these specific elements that tie directly to what I just told you? That way, my questions make sense. And it's not just like, oh, this guy has a clipboard with a script of the 17 questions he wants to ask me because his manager told him to. Well,
0: what you're also doing in your discovery that you've mentioned earlier is by inserting your point of view into your questions you're saying typically we see X, Y, Z, or the reason that I ask is because I saw this about your business, which usually means this. Every time you add a deposit to your question, you buy yourself another question, versus every time you ask an open-ended question that gives nothing, you lose the right to ask one more question. And so try to give the reason or the point of view in your question like Kyle is mentioning. now. Kyle, let's give a slightly different example to the one that Nick gave. There's one where they're trying to get you to talk on day one. There's the other where they're interested and you're trying to map out their priorities and their problems. And they immediately start going and asking you, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And the reason for that might be because of what we talked about originally, which is they might agree with your approach, but they don't believe you can actually do it. So they wanna know the technicalities of, can you check this, this, and this box? How do you avoid the feature by feature discussion when you're trying to figure out what the problem is in discovery?
2: If somebody is actually asking feature level questions, that means that they have some understanding of MySpace, and they're probably naming features and functions that everybody offers, okay? Because a buyer, if they're an expert at all in your solution, it's probably not your specific solution, but rather it's your approach. So if you're a sales force, they may be an expert-ish in CRM. For MongoDB, it means they know a lot about database. The second that fall into the trap of, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. There's like a 99.7% chance that every single question they're asking that we can do, almost all of our competitors can also do. And so I'm happy to say, yeah, we can do that. Why are you asking? And then if it keeps coming, I'm going to kind of, put the brakes on and say, hey, like what you're asking are all things that we're asked a lot because we have to have those to function as a minimum product in this space. However, there's a good chance that a lot of things that would create the most impact for you are things that you're not yet thinking about because you're not even aware that it exists. Would it be okay if we just paused a little bit, talked more about what you're trying to accomplish? And then I promise you in some kind of a demo, not only will I show you the really cool things that I think will make the most impact, We'll also cover the bare minimum requirements that you're already aware of that you need. I would be highly surprised if we did not offer them.
1: I'd be curious to understand more about how you're stacking the deck in your favor against competitors, because I get the sense you're in a pretty competitive space and you need to do things early to make sure that you set the cards in, in your favor in the deal. Is there anything special you feel like you do, Kyle?
2: Emotional relevance goes back to one of my first tips. I know when I'm going into a deal cycle, I know for the most significant stakeholders what their biggest concerns are for their role. And I'm making sure that we're tying our solution to optimize outcomes and get them away from that. And then I'm not trying to go have like 17 big bullet points to go drive at home. I'm trying to anchor on two to three unique things that we do better than anybody else that tie back to what they care about most. If I do that, then they're going to remember that. And even if my competitors do it just as well, they may not tie it back as emotionally. And so the human mind is biased. And in this case, they're going to fail to remember my presentation over the competitors because of the emotional connection. And they're going to infer because of that, that our approach is superior to the competition. That's the only thing I'm trying to do. What do they most want to avoid? What is the biggest thing that cannot happen to them? How does my solution help them avoid that? And how do I make sure that after every call, they're thinking, wow, this solution is going to help me avoid this terrible outcome.
0: So Kyle, a lot of this is anchoring on the fact that you're developing these point of views and you know for your business, there are three to five things that we can help someone avoid, whether it's missing forecasts or losing employees or not hitting revenue targets, whatever it is, right? I imagine as a listener, I'm starting to think, these are the three, four, or five business outcomes that my product could potentially solve for. How do I then work my way backwards from that end state and actually build out a discovery
2: question flow that gets me there? So when we're working from outcomes back to question, look at the outcome and what is the problem that it solves. And so outcome for MongoDB... Is improved developer efficiency. Okay. A problem that solves is we don't have to go over hire developers to hit product goals. That is really expensive and can hurt our efforts to get profitable and possibly even cause layoffs in this market. And so, a question I could ask them is how are you currently prioritizing developer resources, knowing that you can't accomplish everything on the roadmap? So now I begin to understand, okay, here's where they're choosing to cut back, and I'm gonna go a layer deeper. If you had 30% more capacity, what else could you take on? What would that impact be? What happens if the only way you can hit those milestones is by hiring more developers? Oh, well, we can't hire more developers. Now I'm going down this line of question to understand, okay, now if we bring in MongoDB and make it 30% more efficient, I now know what applications they would build, what features they would build, How it impacts customers, who in the org would most be excited about those, and how I can actually go build out a value case based on all of those inputs.
1: I want to ask you about as you get a little bit deeper into the sales process, one of the things that I am hearing more and more and more is the criticality, if that's a word, of multi threading and getting engaged with other stakeholders. And I remember you had something interesting on LinkedIn recently about how to present that ask when you're saying, hey, can you please get me with the CTO? Can you talk about what a seller should do when they're asking for the intro to the exec?
2: Yeah, this is a common misconception that sellers make because they think, oh, I'm just asking for an intro. That's not hard. I'm asking for a quick email. But you're actually asking your buyer to bet their credibility on you. Like if they go introduce you to their CTO and then you waste their time, They're probably going to get a nasty slack from the CTO's EA. Why did you schedule that call? That was a huge waste of time. And so you're not asking for time. You're asking them to bet their credibility. And so you need to make sure that you're overcoming that objection by mitigating their concern. And so one way is throughout the entire sales process, build their confidence by always adding value when you meet with them. If you're constantly making withdrawals, they view you as someone that makes withdrawals. They don't want you to meet with the CTO and do a bunch of withdrawals, right? As you make deposits, they start to buy into how you sell. The next step is make sure that you have a valid reason to meet with the executive. It's not just, hey, my manager so I got to get higher in the account? Can you like bring in your CFL or something? Like that doesn't work. That's not valid. That's completely selfish and uh, seller beneficial, not buyer beneficial. And then make sure that you make it really clear what the expectation is for all the attendees on the call to make sure that they understand how it's going to become successful then even detail the plan. So like if I'm doing this for MongoDB and I'm working with a champ and try to get the CTO on the call, I'd break it out kind of like this. It's been great working with you to figure out how we might be able to help your developers drive more efficiency. But the last thing we want to do is begin the significant migration without understanding the broader engineering org. We want to make these decisions and optimize for the long-term. Usually, the CTO is the best person to help us understand the broadest picture and the long-term to make sure what we do now lines up with near-term, mid-term, and long-term priorities. We would love to talk to Angela, the CTO, and bring her up to speed on what we're thinking, walk through the planned implementation, and see where she would adjust our recommendations to best fit the long-term plans. Now, we know she's busy. We don't want to waste her time. Before we meet with an executive summary, she can review. It'll recap all of our conversations with the specific questions we want to ask. But the main feedback we want is related to the milestones that we've already agreed on because now is the right time to change those, not nine months into implementation. We're also going to loop in an executive from our team, from our technical side. That way, any questions she has, we can answer on the call and not have to get back to her later. What's the best way to get on Angela's calendar? I'm literally defining, here's why we have to talk to her. If we don't, this entire project could fail. And that makes you look really bad if this fails. It makes me look really bad too. It makes all of us look bad. Here's what we're going to talk about. And here's what I'm going to do between now and the call to make sure this call is successful. It's very unlikely when phrased that way that the buyer says, no, I'm not going to loop them in.
0: Can you talk about all of the things that you will do between now, meaning booking the meeting with the exec sponsor and the actual call to prep with your champion, and also to just prep yourself for that call.
2: The exec summary is critical. A common mistake that sellers make is the exec summary becomes just a more consolidated version of the business case you built with your champion. That business case is built through the lens of your champion; it is their metrics, what they care about, and their priorities. We have to repackage and consolidate. To the lens of the executive that's going to go to. That's step one, okay? Exec summary through the lens of the executive. The next step is make sure that you have complete alignment internally. I've seen this happen before where you get on the call, you've already prepped the resource, then you hand it over to them and they've completely forgotten And they take the call like three steps backwards and it's super painful. And so not only do you prep the resource, but you have like trigger words. When we get on the call, this is how I'm going to introduce you. And this is how I'm going to lead into your segue. So you ask the CTO the exact right questions that we planned. But if I'm able to get to the other executive, the exact summary, that they're going to look at literally three minutes before the call. So that's to be super easy to adjust. That should consist of the summary through their lens, and then specifically, what do we want to get out of this call, and why are you the unique individual that can answer these questions and nobody else? Prep my internal stakeholders to make sure they fully understand the scope of the project so we don't have any miscues on the call. If we have those two things, we're ready to execute a successful executive meeting.
0: Can we get hyper-tactical on that? How long is the executive summary, and what is the type of language that you will put in there?
2: I am a big fan of how command of the message breaks it out. Their full brief is like current state, after state, negative consequences. It goes on and on and on. I like to simplify. And so really the exact summary should be current state, the negative consequences tied to current state, what we're proposing for the after state, specifically milestones of the engagement and the outcomes we're hoping to drive. And then the one that I would add for an executive are resources we need from your team to be successful. Because what gets people really skeptical of the executive team is when we propose these miracle solutions that we're just going to install in your environment and you go off and running with very little effort that usually isn't real and they know that. And so I like to be extremely explicit. Here are the resources you'll need to green light and improve on from your ends to be successful. And then finally, here are the questions that are outstanding that we want to have answered on this call. That way, coming in, they know that we understand their business. We have a vision for where we want to go. There's compelling reasons that they care about for why the current state is no longer tenable. And then here's what we need from you to make this call successful. Here are the resources you will need to approve to make this long-term successful. I'm sure I'm missing some things, but if you have those elements, I think it'd be hard to go wrong.
0: Kyle, random question for you. Do you have that saved in like a template? Because I would frankly like to steal that myself.
2: Absolutely. Let's put out a template and throw it in the show notes here. So you and all the listeners can get their hands on it.
0: Great. So now we have that template that we can use and we've sent it over to Angela. And you mentioned it yourself. If we're lucky, Angela's read that three minutes before the call. But nine times out of 10, she hasn't. One out of 10 times she did. And so my question for you is you jump on that call. What are you doing? Are you saying, so uh, did you read it? Do we just need to say, yes, it's good? Are you basically just reading through it and recapping it all? How do you tie that exact summary to what you actually decide to cover on the call?
2: You don't want to start the call off by making them feel in any way like they failed or that you're a nuisance. And so I'll usually just call out the reality and say, hey, Angela, we sent over the exact summary. If you're anything like me, you haven't looked at it yet because you're running back to back. Would you rather take five minutes and review it right now or have us walk you through it live on the call? And then if she's like, actually, I read it all the way. I'm like, that's a, no wonder you're the C2. That's incredible, right? Before we dive in, what's that got you? What questions do you have? And then I'll go into my general talk track, which is going to be primarily around, are the negative consequences we highlighted here actually priorities for you? I'm not going to spend a lot of time recapping the current state. That's actually painful for me when we're like seven calls in and for the seventh time we're recapping the current state, know what that is, that's validated, but I do want to confirm the negative consequences. And so when I look at the negative consequences, it's going to be the reason why I'm asking if these are highly relevant to you is no company is ever solving anything that isn't a top three priority. If these negative consequences are not urgent and painful for you, then we're either not the right solution or we're tying our solutions with the wrong negative consequences, helping me understand that you would rank these. So I'm giving that context and I'm being a real, like I don't want to go solve C-level problems for them. right? And then once they validate those, that they validated that our proposed solution would work, looking at what we'd require from your end to be successful, are these resources that you could theoretically deploy if you chose to move forward? That's a yes or no question. If it's no... Understand the timing, why that's the case. If it's yes, fantastic. If we're moving through that conversation, we validated that the negative consequences are priorities to solve, the proposed solution does seem to fit the bill, and they have resources to apply. It would be well, we've spent the last three months working closely with Mark, Charles, and Stephanie on the solution. Now you've seen the solution. Is there anything else that you need to understand from our end prior to us working with your team to finalize the financial aspects of this?
0: Well, Kyle, what you're doing is everything that you've talked about today is all in the vein of you're building up to this big exec meeting where you don't want to be a nuisance. And the way that you are not a nuisance is you're actually using what you learned in discovery to tell someone about their business and what you've learned in talking to their team. And so there are a couple of things that I want to call out that Kyle did that were very astute, which is upfront. If someone has read the memo or the exec summary the first thing you're doing is you're saying, hey, let's pause, right? You're an executive, you probably already have some questions on that. Why don't you take the mic up front? And you're actually saying, look, I'm not gonna recap the entire executive summary you just read. You probably have questions after some pretty big statements were made in that, and you're giving them the pen so that they can take control of the meeting, which is what a lot of executives want to do. And then from there, you're saying, this is the hypothesis I've already formulated all I'm asking you to do is to help us tweak and prioritize which of these should be top or bottom of the list. The last one that I'd like to ask about as our final question is there was one other thing that you were doing that was really smart in that executive briefer email, and it was talking about the resources that you needed to call on from their team, right? And the reason that you're doing that is because they will get skeptical If you just say, this is going to be a snap of the fingers, and then all of a sudden you have 30% more efficiency. One of the scary things that happens earlier in the deal cycle, especially with newer technology is either a technical buyer or even a champion will think that the outcome is good to your point, but they won't believe it and they won't say anything about it. And then you get the email that's, hey, this isn't a priority right now how else earlier in your deal cycle are you unpacking the unspoken objection or the potential fear that this could be good, but I don't quite believe it's true?
2: Yeah. Early in my sales career, I would try to run away from any unspoken risk, hoping that if I ignored it, the buyer would do. And then I just lost a ton of deals because the risk popped up at the end anyway. It wasn't resolved. And so one of my jobs as a seller is to sell, so help buyers understand what could go wrong and help them address to mitigate that risk. And so I'm really thinking through the entire process. I'm selling through the value realization of the deal, not the contract signature. All of my language is around how they're going to experience value, how they're going to recognize that. But then it's also, hey, we've implemented this quite a few times. It's gone great most of the time it's gone poorly some other times. Here's why it goes poorly. Here are the resources we need access to to make sure it doesn't go poorly. I'm proactively coaching them to understand what needs to happen to ensure that it rolls out effectively because I've seen both the good and the bad from my side. Everybody at this point has been burned by buying something that didn't work as it was supposed to. Every seller has lost a deal because at the last minute, they realize they need a resource they didn't have. I have found it's much better to bring up early and often, hey, for this to work, here's what you're going to have to bring to the table from a resource standpoint. Here are the risks needed to get together and not run away from it.
1: Boom. Beautiful. Kyle, unfortunately, we're running out of time. And so we got to move to the last question. And the last question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things sales should be doing. Now we got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps?
2: Sales people need to avoid the whirlwind. The whirlwind are the slacks, the emails, the texts, the notifications, LinkedIn, unless you're reading my post and liking it, then you're allowed to do it. But really, like all those things that pop up that distract us from the critical functions of pipeline generation, pipeline health, and personal development, postpone it, scrap it, avoid it. Tells people are great at being busy, not being great at being productive, be ruthless with your time and prioritize nonstop. Otherwise, you will settle into
1: mediocre time management and mediocre results. Beautiful. Kyle, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Your Zoom Info Actionable Insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line
0: you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there, in the email, explain how ZoomInfo helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by ZoomInfo's go-to-market plays, link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts. Again, yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect structure your pre-call prep in form of questions you need to ask to validate the point of view that you've developed in your pre-call research. Number 2, in your exec summaries don't just regurgitate all of the information that you learned, repackage it. That means the biggest problems up top you can solve very short how you can solve them and most importantly the resources that that executive will need to call on to solve the problem. Number 3, If an exec comes in hot looking for answers, immediately start with, hey, here's my point of view on how we can help, here's our hypothesis, and where I need your help is I can get more granular or more correct on that hypothesis if you let me learn a little bit more about your business. And then lastly, number four, if you're asking for power, explain why you need power involved to get the deal done and explain how you plan to make it a good use of their time. Nick, how could people help us out?
1: It would be meaningful if you left 30 Minutes to President's Club a review, because I like reading reviews of the show. You can say things about my high voice. You can say things about Armand's pleasant demeanor. You could say things about the stuff you learned on the show. But please give us a review, and we'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense,
0: who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Six Sense. The link is in the show notes.